Thank you, Andy, for those, those songs this morning. My heart was encouraged. There's a, uh, a struggle uh, on the drum. Maybe you say, yeah, every week there's a struggle on the drum, but there's a struggle for me personally. I have a hard time singing and playing at the same time. Uh, and those are some great songs that uh, I was wanting to, to break out in song with you, but, um, you know, somebody's got to be the little drummer boy. So there we go. Ephesians chapter number one. Uh, I am I'm thrilled and excited to continue this series. Um, Dave hit an absolute home run, kicking us off and laying the foundation. Uh, the second portion of chapter one is a little difficult because uh, it's a lot of the same of, of the first part of, of chapter number one, uh, but in a different, different format, right? So uh, Paul kind of opens up chapter one with this, this eulogy, this kind of praise and teaching moment here to just kind of lay the foundation of, of who Christ is, who we are, those seven spiritual blessings that Dave outlined last week. And then we follow that up and finish out chapter one here with this, this prayer that Paul has in Ephesians 1 here. And he finishes out the chapter with this, this prayer to the Lord on behalf of the church at Ephesus. So again, I'm, I'm absolutely excited about this, this book, and I hope the excitement is building for you as well as we continue to work our way through. Uh, we've got this section here of this deep doctrinal truth, and as we continue to work our way through the book, we're going to get into some deep practical application that will soon follow. And so I love the structure that Paul gives us here. He teaches and and he lays the foundation of who Christ is and as a result of who we are as adopted, beloved sons and daughters of that Jesus, right? And then he will show how that will flesh its way out in daily living in the context of a number of different relationships. And so, again, here we have it. We have the heart of Paul really just pouring out here in chapter number one on behalf of the body of Christ, the church. And if there's one thing that we know about Paul is that he loves the church. And what an irony that is, knowing Paul's background and his testimony that he was the greatest threat to the church, and now he has become the greatest lover of the body of Christ, the church. And aren't you thankful for the grace and mercy of Jesus to give Paul that testimony recorded in Scripture? His heart is, is literally bleeding for the church. He wants so much for the church. He desires so much for individuals within this church. And you can see it just spilling over in this prayer that Paul gives at the latter half of this chapter one prayer. And so the conclusion or the takeaway of this prayer that Paul gives us is this, right? And I'm going to give you a hashtag spoiler alert. We're going to give with the take. We're going to start with the takeaway first, and then we're going to work our way through it. And the case that Dave gave last week, and certainly the case that Paul's going to build through this prayer, is that Jesus changes everything. Jesus changes everything. There is no facet of your your life, your relationships, anything that is not changed when you come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ as your Lord and personal Savior, He changes everything. And I'm sure you might be thinking in the back of your mind, okay, Eric, we just went through the Gospel of John. You learned a lot 
about Jesus. We know that Jesus changes everything. We saw His signs, His miracles, His wonders. We saw His his power, His authority, His sonship, His kingship on full display in the Gospel of John. So Eric, tell me something that we, we don't already know, right? We covered that over the last year and a half through the Gospel of John. So you might be thinking, okay, what next, right? Well, hold on a second, right? Let's take a time out and let's answer that question, right? Does Jesus change everything? And if you're like me, I had that same thought, right? Should I even go here with the thrust of this passage? Should I even dare title my message that because of everything that we've just covered through the Gospel of John? But yet, we can't get away from this reality in chapter 1 that Jesus changes everything. He changes everything in my flesh and this world and a number of different forces are going to be fighting against that reality in our life. And if you're like me, I don't always live in light of that truth, that Jesus changes everything. Because if I did, and if that truth, that Jesus changes everything, was really real in my life, why don't my relationships with my neighbors look a little bit different than they did five years ago, right? Why don't, why doesn't, excuse me, our relationship with my spouse today look a little bit different than it did five years ago, right? I'm just using five years ago as the benchmark, right? Why doesn't my relationship with my kids today look a little bit different than it did five years ago? Why doesn't my relationship within my community and my neighborhood look a little bit different today than it did five years ago? Because the reality of it is that we don't always live and realize that truth that Jesus changes everything in our life on a day-to-day basis. It should change everything in our life. It should impact every relationship. It should change every response that comes out of our life. But the fact of the matter is we don't always live in light of the incredible Wait in reality that Jesus, Jesus changes everything. You see, Paul is teeing up the book of Ephesians here in chapter number one to absolutely rock our world. I mean, he is going to shake us to the core in chapter number one because he wants us to get something before we move on. He wants us to understand something very, very specific before we get into some other teaching, some other topics, all these different relationships. We have to center on a centralized truth We have to give the collective nod of agreement individually and corporately that Jesus really does change everything. And on the basis of that, we can move forward through the rest of this book, Ephesians. So here we are in this prayer. See, Paul, in his understanding of the Christian life, and if we know anything about Paul, I think he had a pretty good understanding of the Christian life, right? I mean, he did write and and pen a majority of the New Testament under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So I think Paul has pretty good insight into what the Christian life should look like, right? And Paul was absolutely consumed day by day, moment by moment, in every sphere of his life to allow the gospel of Jesus Christ to radically change its impact. Who he was before is not who he was then, post-knowing Jesus Christ. I wonder today, as Andy asked us to think about our gospel story, 
to think about our moment of salvation when we came to the knowledge of Jesus Christ as our Lord and personal Savior. I wonder, are we radically changed? Is every facet of our life, is every relationship impacted as a result of that moment that Jesus changed us? My fear is that we're so familiar that we're so comfortable or so acquainted with these truths that they have lost their meaning in our lives. What do I mean? I'm going to give an illustration here. I think most of you know that my dad, my father, is, um, is from the South, Alabama, to be specific. And I'm a dad now, obviously, as well, father of four, and it's amazing how in my fathering of my kids, I often, things just come out of my mouth that, like, is my dad in this room or where did that come from? You know, you use those same sayings, those same phrases. I can remember sitting all four of my kids down at individual times and trying to have a serious talk with them, right, about a moment in life, a situation that occurred, whether it's a fight with a sibling or a situation at school or, you know, getting along with a, a friend in the neighborhood, whatever it might be, I'm sitting them down and I'm going to have a serious moment, right? And in those moments, you know, fathers are digging deep to really making an impact in that moment, right? Just like my dad did with myself. And in those moments, my dad would come out with these isms, these phrases, these sayings that I can remember sitting on the couch or across the table from my dad and him having this big moment. And I had absolutely no idea what my dad was trying to tell me. Right. And, and maybe it's the South. Maybe it's him being from Alabama or maybe it's, it's him trying to combine two or three sayings in one, as he often did to make it more impactful. But I just didn't get really the weight of where dad was going with this whole thing. Right. And I want to share a few of these sayings with you to see if you can kind of get where I'm coming from, right? And if you know the saying, I want you to help me finish it. I'm going to do some easy ones at front, at the first here, and then, then we'll kind of work our way through this, right? Here we go. If it ain't broke, don't. Okay, good, right? And I had to do a good Southern one with the word ain't in it, right? So you can, you can, you can picture, you know, a, a Southern dad from Alabama. If it ain't broke, son, don't fix it, right? That's, that's what my dad told me, right? And he'd, he'd go off into this... Uh, uh, excursus of, of what that looked like for my situation, right? He also would say, actions speak louder than words, right? Okay, those are your two softballs, right? And I'm hoping that maybe you haven't heard of these, these next ones, right? So here we go, right? He would say this. He'd say, son, a watched pot never boils. Good, okay. I mean, you've not heard that one before. A watched pot never boils, okay? Okay, everybody knows that one. I, I can remember as a kid thinking, Dad, I have no idea what you're trying to say on that one, all right? Uh, help, help me break that one down a little bit. What, what does that one mean? Somebody help me. Yeah, just walk away, right? Just staring at it. It's not going to change it. It's kind of like watching paint dry, right? It's just, it's going to dry. You just need to walk away and let it do its thing. So quit trying to rush things, right? Quit, quit, quit watching the clock and, and just let it happen, right? The next one was this, and this is this one of my favorite ones. I can literally remember telling my dad, I, I have no idea what that means, okay? Here we go. He said this, you can't make an omelet... Yeah, without breaking some eggs, right? How many of you never heard that one either? Okay, good, a few of them. That's, that's a little better. You can't make an omelet without breaking some eggs. What does that one mean? Somebody help me. 
right, I have no idea either, right? No, no one knows what that one means. I know, I'm Sarah, Sarah nailed it. She knows what it means. But yeah, right, so in order to get something done, sometimes, you know, it's a little messy. It's not perfect. Some things have to get broken, kind of trial and error, and it works together. And look, you've got a beautiful omelet, but it happened by breaking something, by kind of making a little mess of things, and that's okay, right? It was, it was that moment that my, my dad taught me some of those life lessons through these through these isms, right? And I think ultimately, where am I going with this? Maybe, maybe a poor segue of an illustration here, but I think some phrases in Scripture can be relegated to some of those phrases that we're very, very familiar with that have really lost their punch or their meaning in our life, right? We can talk about the resurrection of Jesus as if it's just some passive, flippant, irrelevant thing, right? We just talk about the resurrection of Jesus. But in reality, that's like a game changer, right? That's, that's a big deal. We talk about topics such as grace and, and mercy. We talk about relationships and different things as if they're just not that big of a deal. And so Paul here, understanding our human propensity to make less of something that's a big deal, he, he does a spiritual T.O. in chapter one and says, hey, let's get this. I'm gonna do it once and then I'm gonna pray it twice so you guys can get some of these truths into your head. And hopefully, if they get into your head, they'll navigate to your heart. And they navigate to your heart, hopefully, they'll start working their way out in your relationships and how you live and how you love and how you interact with other people. And so Paul is challenging them to wake up to the reality and the weight and the bigness of the truths that we have about ourselves and about Christ recorded here in chapter number one. Ask yourself this morning, does my life truly tell the story to the world that Jesus really does change everything? Dave Welch mentioned last week those seven spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. We're holy and blameless. We're adopted as sons and daughters. We've been lavished upon in the riches of his grace. We have redemption and forgiveness. We have an inheritance. We have hope. And finally, we have been given the seal of the Holy Spirit can I get an amen to that? That is huge. That was my best Donald Trump voice right there, right? That is a big deal that Jesus is all of those things and that he has provided all those things on our behalf. But yet we read chapter one and we can give an amen to that and then we walk out those doors and we live as if those truths are false, that they're not real, that they're a lie because we don't internalize them. And we don't flesh them out in the relationships that we have on a regular basis. Friends, this is a game changer to understand who Christ is in Ephesians chapter 1. And Paul knows it. His heart is so full with these realities. And he is going to commit these truths to the Lord in prayer on behalf of the church at Ephesus. And in this prayer, Paul allows us once again in similar fashion and in his opening eulogy to soak in these rich and beautiful truths as he continues to lay the foundation for the practical application that is to come. So this morning, let's speak to the truth that Jesus changes everything. Let's speak that truth in our minds, into our hearts, and allow the Holy Spirit, by God's grace, to massage and work those realities deep into our lives. Let's read our text this morning, and we'll open in a word of prayer. 
Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand, at his right hand, excuse me, in the heavenly places. Verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's open in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you again for your word. My heart is full as... I even reflected from last week over the truths that were preached and taught from Dave. I thank you for that. I pray now as we have an opportunity to even build on that as we examine this prayer that, that Paul made on behalf of the church of Ephesus. I pray that we would really look for opportunities to examine our hearts, to examine our minds, to examine our thinking, to examine our approach to your scripture, to examine our relationship with you. And Father, I pray that we would be changed, that we would not be satisfied with just going through the motions of getting through another service and, and coming back tonight for Awana and just going through the motions of doing that all over again next week. But Father, I pray that we would truly, that your Holy Spirit would stir us up and would convict us of ways that the gospel has become commonplace in ways that, the, that, that we have believed a lie whether from our flesh or from this world, that Jesus doesn't change everything. I pray that you would do that work that we cannot do. We ask these things in your precious and holy name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So the big idea of our text this morning is this. Because of who Jesus is and what he has done on our behalf, we should live an empowered Christian life. Right, let me say that one more time. Because of who Jesus is and what he has done on our behalf, we should live an empowered Christian life. That's the takeaway that Paul is trying to stir them up to understand and to believe and to know and to act upon. We should live an empowered Christian life as a result of those seven spiritual blessings that were laid out last week. You should, you should go out of these doors equipped and empowered to face the struggles, the circumstances, and the difficulties of life. Because you have been equipped with hope and with an inheritance and with power that we're going to see here this morning in this prayer. So we're going to look at these three truths that Paul desires us to know. He desires us to know these truths so much that he prayed, again, very specifically for these truths to come alive in the church at Ephesus. And as we span the period of time here, fast forward to Liberty Hills Bible Church, the thrust and the desire of this passage is the same, that our church would come alive and be empowered with these same truths today. So the first one that we're going to look at this morning is Paul desires us to know the hope that we have in Jesus. Secondly, Paul desires us to know the inheritance 
that we have in Jesus. And thirdly, Paul desires us to know the power that we have in Jesus. So before we dive into these three truths that Paul is praying for the church, I want us to look closely at this word know in the middle of verse number 18. All right, look with me there. Verse number 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know. Right? This is, this is really the central point of this passage right here as it's all again one sentence. Paul, you know, apparently didn't take uh, you know, English Comp 101, right? He had lots of run-ons in this text. He just kept it flowing, kept those commas flying in there, kept these thoughts building. And we have one sentence here that really gets to the heart of it in the middle of verse number 18, right? Where he says that you may know. So this is the purpose of this prayer. This is the reason that Paul is praying to God the Father on behalf of this church at Ephesus is they would know these three things very specifically. He doesn't pray for them, these three truths, right? The hope, the inheritance, and the power. He doesn't pray for these things to be done or to be completed. He's assuming here that his audience are fellow believers, and so he's not praying that his readers are called, that they obtain or take hold of this new inheritance or receive some kind of new power. That work is already done, right? Do we get that? They have hope, they have an inheritance, and they have power. They're not getting more of it. It's not incomplete. They don't need to get some special feeling to get more of it. It's, it's done, right? They, they have that, right? So Paul then, knowing that his audience are fellow believers, that they have hope, that they have an inheritance and that they have uh, power. There we go. There's the third one. That they have power. They have those three things. His desire is for them to, to know those things. And when we say, when we talk about know, oftentimes we can relegate that word to just kind of this academic knowledge of truths and, and facts, right? A plus B equals C. Um, I wasn't good at math. I think it was Andy last week that talked about some pi square thing. What was that one? Yeah, see, I, I didn't, I wasn't good at math, so I don't know. But that, that's a formula, right? I'm just kidding. I know that one. But, right, that, that's a formula, right? These are truths. They're, it's academic. I, I know this formula. I put the numbers in, and I come out with a solution, right? We can relegate knowledge and even Scripture to that, right? We just know a lot of things about the Word of God, about salvation, about Scripture in our head, Right, but Paul, in this word here that's used, right, it comes from the Greek word gnosko, and it brings more uh, than an academic knowledge. It's an experiential knowledge. Right, Paul doesn't just want them to know some stuff about Jesus. He doesn't want them to just be smart about doctrinal matters. He wants them to know in an experiential way who Jesus is. And so this is, this is huge. Here, as Paul is building on their understanding of what they have already been given in completed form in their relationship with Jesus Christ. They have been called, they have received an inheritance, and they have been given resurrection power. And he wants them to experience those realities and those truths on a daily basis. This would cause them to come to the conclusion of what? Jesus changes everything. The Bible tells us in James 2.19 that even the demons believe and shudder. 
The devil and his minions have a base knowledge of the personal work of Jesus, but they certainly don't know Jesus in the way that Paul is advocating for in his prayer. Paul knows Jesus in a very different way than the devil and his demons do. Paul's desire is that we would quickly move from an academic-based knowledge to an experiential-based knowledge of Jesus, and that would happen today. He's advocating for this to be fast-forward, for it to be accelerated, for them to not lessen their understanding a second longer, and for them to take quick, deep steps in living in those realities today. For Paul, that was the only way to live. It was the only way to follow Christ in the light of these realities. We see that through Galatians, Ephesians, and Philippians, and Colossians. We see Paul just overcome with the gospel of Jesus Christ, overcome with what Jesus has done on his behalf, overcome with the realities that he's been adopted out of darkness into light, overcome with the realities that he's been given an inheritance Despite being the chief of sinners, Paul understood in very unique and real ways the impact of what it meant to really believe and know in this experiential way, Jesus Christ. So why does Paul, that's true, so why does Paul need to pray these truths over the church at Ephesus. If following Christ should look like this, verse number 18, that you may know what is the hope to which he has been called. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great mind? If the Christian should live like that and look like that, then why would Paul even need to pray? Well, I want to look at kind of three sub points before we dive into our three key points of our text this morning. Yes, I just doubled my outline. For those, for those people that didn't catch on to that, uh, we're mindful of our time. We'll make through it. Don't worry. See, that's how you do it. Instead of freaking people out with six points, you break it up into two three-point outlines. See what I did there? All right. All right, so here we go. Uh, so why would Paul need to pray this prayer, right? Because Paul, first of all, is fully aware and conscious of the spiritual warfare that is actively taking place among them. Right, Paul was so in tune with this reality, right? He says, um, he says in Romans 7, 21, uh, I think it was Andy referenced Romans 7 just last a uh, few weeks ago, actually. Romans 7, 21 says this. So I find it to be a law, a rule, a natural law that when I want to do right, evil lies what? Close at hand. Paul goes on in Galatians 5, 16 and 17, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other and keep you from doing the thing you want to do. Peter reminds us in chapter 5, verse number 8, he says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Right? Paul was fully aware of the spiritual warfare that was actively taking place around them. Verse, or point number two, uh, Paul was fully aware of the weakness of our flesh, right? And actually those verses I read just a moment ago were for point number two. I apologize. Matthew 26, 41 says this. Christ is speaking to Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says this, watch and pray that you may not enter in temptation. The spirit indeed is what? Willing, but the flesh is, is weak. 
Paul was in tune with the reality that there's spiritual warfare. We have a real weakness in our flesh. He was intimately and innately aware of the struggle that we have on this earth to really know Christ in this way, to experience him, to treasure him, to love and serve him. There is a battle for our hearts and our minds to keep us satisfied and living the nominal, complacent, just a 10 church type of Christianity. Paul knew this struggle. And so what does he do? He gave the eulogy. He, he taught them, he instructed them, he urged them, and then what did he do? He prayed for them. He backed it up with a simple prayer of these same truths, these same realities. Satan certainly knows if he can continue to suppress the realities and the truths that we have in Christ, the hope, the inheritance, and the power that we have in Christ, he can keep the church ineffective in living those realities in the context of the world and in the context of the church, thus minimizing the influence of the gospel altogether. Friends, there is so much at stake in understanding the weight and the impact of this prayer then, and certainly there is still weight and impact available to us today. Thirdly, Paul prays this prayer because he is fully aware of the identity crisis that we experience this side of eternity. Right? You know where I'm going with that one? There's an identity crisis. Have you felt it? Have you felt the pull of, of your old man? Have you felt this, the, the struggle to go back to the slave box of sin? Have you, have you felt the struggle to go back to that cell and put on those, those shackles of sin that have been what? Broken! that we've been freed from. There's an identity crisis that we struggle with in our flesh this side of eternity. Peter tells us in chapter 2, verse number 9 of his first epistle, but you are, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That is what God did for us. And that is who we are. We are chosen. And this is a beautiful reality that we have to speak into our minds and our hearts. We have to preach the truth of scripture because we forget and we fail and we believe the lies of Satan that we are not what God has said we are. Romans 8, 29 and 30, familiar verses, for whom he foreknew, God foreknew you. He also predestined to be conformed to what? The image of his son. That is God's plan for your life. Not only has, has he chosen you, not only are you a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people for his possession, but God has a plan for you and it's to be like his son to make you like him, to conform you like him. The chief of sinners, to day by day, to put off our flesh and to put on Christ-likeness. We have an identity crisis, but God is faithful. He conformed us to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The work that Jesus did and started will be completed. 
He is able and he will not fail. John 15, verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. And whatever you ask in the Father in my name, he would give it to you. This is God's plan. This is who we are in Christ. And friends, Paul has to pray this prayer over this church at Ephesus because we soon and quickly forget who we are in Christ. So why did Paul choose to pray this? He just shared and taught and explained again these truths in the previous passage. So why a prayer? Paul knows this, that this work, this prayer, these desires, these realities that they're not going to come to fruition, that he can't do it in and of himself. This can only happen through God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, as we see there in verses 15, 16, and 17. Paul can't manufacture this. He can't stir them up through some sensational sermon. I can't do that, nor can, nor can you. Only through the expressed power that is present in the triune Godhead are we able to know Jesus in this way. Only God can initiate this work of salvation. Only God can complete the work of salvation. And only God is able to keep this work of salvation secure for all eternity. And in the spirit of humble disposition, Paul opens this prayer and pens this prayer. And in doing so, he acknowledges that we need Jesus. So let's look more closely at our main three points of our sermon this morning. First of all, Paul desires us to know the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Paul desires us to know the hope that we have in Jesus. What is the hope that we have in Jesus? That's a good question, right? What is this hope that Paul desires for the church at Ephesus. To answer that question, let's fast forward to verse number 20, right? So, so jump down a, f- a few verses with me to verse number 20, okay? Are you ready? That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Let's focus in on that phrase, when he raised him up from the dead. Do I dare visit John 20, 31 again? Can we do it one more time? But these are written. Why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have what? Life in His name. We can look to John one more time. And we get the answer to our question, what is the hope that we have in Jesus? It is what? Life. That is the hope that we have in Jesus Christ because he died and because he rose again, we have life. This is the hope that Paul desires us to know in Jesus Christ. Not only has Jesus come to give us life, but again, the quality and the quantity of that life in John 10.10 was what? He came to give us life and that we would have it more, what? Abundantly. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45 through 57, excuse me, 54, had a little dyslexic moment, 54 through 57 says this, 
When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the hope that we have. This someday the perishable will put on imperishable. That the mortal will put on immortality. Why? Because Christ rose again from the dead and thus securing life on our behalf. I think of the song, Because He Lives. It states this, I was dead in the grave. I was covered in sin and shame. I heard mercy call my name. He rolled the stone away. It goes on to say, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, every fear is gone. I know he holds my life, my future in his hands. Friends, we know, in the proper understanding of know, that Jesus died rose again in accordance with the scripture. But do we really know in that experiential way? And as such, are living right now, day by day, with the hope of that reality in the forefront of our minds. When others interact with me, do they see defeat or do they see victory? When I start rubbing shoulders with my neighbors, my coworkers, those in my community, do they, do they see despair or do they see hope? Paul prays that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened, they would be illumined, that these truths would be revealed, and that the hope of Jesus will live afresh and anew in our hearts and our minds. Number two, Paul desires us to know the inheritance that we have in Jesus. Paul desires us to know the inheritance that we have in Jesus. If our hope is life, then what is the inheritance that we have in Jesus? Our inheritance is a relationship with God through Jesus in heaven for all eternity. Now, let me say that one more time. If our hope is life, then what is our inheritance we have in Jesus? Our inheritance is this, a relationship with God through Jesus in heaven for all eternity. Romans 8, 14 through 17 says this, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, what? Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. I love that passage of scripture. Heirs with Christ. A relationship with God the Father fully restored through the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that I can go boldly to the throne of grace and I can cry, Abba, Father, something I could never do if but for Jesus. That relationship is restored. That is our inheritance. He goes on and 
Hebrews, uh, the Bible, excuse me, goes on in Hebrews chapter 9, verse number 15. It says this, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised, get this, eternal inheritance. So the hope is life. The inheritance is a restored relationship with God the Father through Jesus in heaven for all eternity. The span and scope of this inheritance is is described by Paul as what the riches of his glorious inheritance. Let's look at verse number 18 with me one more time. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. I love these descriptors of this inheritance. Riches and glorious. I just, just stop and consider your view of your salvation in Christ. Is it a, is it a rich truth and reality in your life, or, or are we struggling with living that out on a daily basis? Would you describe it as a glorious? Inheritance, a glorious reality. If something is glorious, I'll tell you what, you're probably going to tell somebody else about it. If, if, you, if you deem something extremely valuable, as in this descriptor of, of richness and riches, if you have something very valuable, you're probably going to tell somebody else about it. You're going to share the goodness, the wealth, the value, the gloriousness. If that's a word, I don't know, but... It's glorious, right? Are you going to share that with others or are you going to keep that to yourself? Is the gospel and your salvation, is your inheritance and your hope, is it changing how you interact with other people? What is an inheritance? In our minds, looking back at what's described here by Paul, we can't place a value. We can't adequately describe this inheritance, but the riches of his glorious inheritance is a pretty good effort by Paul here to describe really everything that is wrapped up in this inheritance. But what is an inheritance? Maybe you've received one before. It's something that is passed down to you, right? It's the act of receiving something passed down from a previous generation. An inheritance in and of itself is simply what? It's grace. I mean, whoever gave you that inheritance, they could have chose to spend it. They could have chose to use it. They could have chose to give it to somebody else. <laughs> but they gave, it to, they gave it to you. They wrote you in that will. They wrote you as the recipient of that inheritance, whatever it might be. And, and, and think about the relational intimacy that we have here in Ephesians chapter 1 to consider that Jesus thought of me. He wrote me into that will, if you will. He thought of me to say, hey, you know what? Out of all the people, out of all the men, women, and child of the, over the history of mankind that could receive this inheritance, it's Eric Stanley. The grace, the mercy, the beauty of that. I, I don't deserve that. I didn't do anything to earn that. There's nothing that, uh, no feather I can put in my cap to say, yeah, Jesus, you know, I'm owed 
that inheritance that you got up there in heaven. Why don't you go ahead and pass that along to me because of what I've done and who I am or what I can offer. No, I'm a sinner saved by grace. I'm dead in my trespasses in sin. It's that inheritance. It's, it's simply grace. It's not required. There's no way to earn it. It's simply given on the basis of a lasting and valued relationship. Jesus values my relationship with him. Thus, he bought me an inheritance with his own blood, with his own life. Should that change maybe just a little bit how we view our relationship with God? Should that change just a little bit in how we value and how we flesh out our relationship with Christ on a daily basis? Should that change maybe just a little bit with those realities of the hope and the inheritance that we have? Should that change just a little bit in how we approach the struggles and the difficulties of life, the circumstances that, that weigh heavy on our shoulders? Should that reality that I am chosen, beloved, and valued by the King of kings and the Lord of lords, should that change how I approach tomorrow? Yes, it should. Does that not, that gift of grace based on a valued relationship, does that not describe our inheritance that we have in Christ? Number three. Number three. Paul desires for us to know the power that we have in Jesus. Paul desires us to know the power that we have in Jesus. The span and scope of the power is also described in, in very unique and and in special ways. All right, let's go ahead and read with me. Verse number 19, it says this, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? Immeasurable and great. And also according to what? His great might. Once again, Paul highlights our dependency and Christ's sufficiency. Let me say that one more time. Paul, in verse number 19, highlights our dependency and Christ's sufficiency. It is power working on our behalf to complete salvation. It is his great might who does this work. Paul finishes this passage of Scripture with this incredible description of what happened to Jesus once he left this earth and ascended up into heaven. Let's read verses 20 through 23. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things, how much is all? That's a tough one to answer, right? It's all, it's everything. There's nothing that is not included in the word what? All, right? Th that means that he's, he's got it all covered. My life, your life, your circumstances, his circumstances, that illness, that loss of job, that relational struggle, whatever the situation might be, Jesus is in control. 
And he put all things, verse 22, under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul, again, introduces this topic of the church in our relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, Paul, in his understanding of the Christian life, understood that if an individual truly understood what Christ did on their behalf and who they were in Christ as a result of that work, that the product would always be them willfully and lovingly engaged in the context of a local church. Why? Because if Christ loved them and gave himself up for them for, the, for this work of salvation, and just as Christ, or Paul describes Christ as the church being his own body, the fullness of him who fills all in all, Christ has an equal concern about the individual joining corporately together in the context of the body of Christ. There are no Lone Ranger Christians in the New Testament description of the church. And so if you love and appreciate and know Jesus Christ as your Lord and personal Savior, you will love, know, and appreciate the body of Christ. This is God's plan for us as individuals. So Paul places a type of what I'll call an exclamation point in these final verses at the end of this prayer, he's reminding the readers that in case there is any question or concern about the ability of Christ to follow through with what has been promised, they simply need to look at his resume, his qualifications, and his list of accomplishments. We can come to no other conclusion than this. He is able. You see, friends, knowing Jesus in this way in this experiential type of way, it truly does change everything. So what does this look like? What does it look like for us to live out the hope, the inheritance, and the power of Jesus Christ, understanding that he is able and has the authority and the might and the power to bring all of this through to completion? What does it look like? What is, what is Paul really driving his readers to come to the conclusion of? He's trying to come to the conclusion of this. They need to wake up. That the readers here at the Church of Ephesus, and certainly for us today at Liberty Hills Bible Church, we need to wake up to the reality that Jesus is who he said he is, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Alpha, the Omega, the first, the last. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by Jesus. We need to wake up to the reality that Jesus chose me and chose you before the foundation of the world. He formed you in your mother's womb. He adopted you into his family, ushering you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It means we need to wake up to the reality that Jesus is inside of us and he is greater than the devil that is in the world. We need to have this understanding of those truths and realities. We don't have to experience death because life has already been won. We don't have to experience defeat because victory has already been secured on our behalf. We don't have to experience despair because joy has been fulfilled in the personal work of Jesus. 
Paul praised this prayer because he knew then that God can turn a world upside down with the gospel of Jesus if and when his church will start to know in that experiential way the hope, the inheritance, and the power that we have in Jesus Christ. This is the prayer. This is the heart that Paul had for this church. So friends, I wonder this morning as as we're kicking off another series and, and we're looking for God to do great things in our church, to use our church in our community. We're looking for, for God and we're praying, we're begging for God to use the relationships and the individuals in this church to bring others to the knowledge of who Jesus is and what he did for them at the cross of Calvary. But friends, that's not going to happen unless we do what Paul is urging his readers to do, to not just know something about Jesus, but to know in an experiential way how that relationship with Jesus really does change everything. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your love towards us. The world, the flesh, Sin, the cares of this world, they, they are real. And they weigh, they weigh heavy on us. But Father, we know that something else is real and it is your word and it is quick and powerful and, and sharper than any two-edged sword. And when your word goes out, it does not return void, but it always prospers in the thing that you sent it to accomplish. So Father, we claim those truths and realities this morning, that you have chosen us. If we placed our faith in the personal work of Jesus, that you chose us and you have a plan for us. And it is this, that we walk in the realities of the hope and the inheritance and the power that we have in Christ. Father, thank you that our relationship with you has been restored because of Christ, that we have a hope of life we have an inheritance of heaven for all eternity because of Jesus. I pray that these truths would never become commonplace, that we would fight against our flesh and fight against um, just our propensity to just allow things to be weakened or diluted. I pray that the richness and the greatness and the power and the might, the gloriousness of these truths that are described that Paul used here in, in this prayer, I pray that that would come alive this morning and that how we think and how we act and how we live and how we love, and how we relate to those in this church and outside of this church would be radically changed as a result of us hearing, obeying, and living your word this morning. Father, do a work that we can't do. We ask these things in your name. Amen.